Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. What's up, everyone? It is C.W. Hall. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs Radio Show. On this week's episode, I sat down with Dr. Sherry Drenzik. She's an epidemiologist for the state of Georgia, along with Dr. Patrick O'Neill, who is the Director of Health Protection at the Georgia Department of Public Health. And the focus of our conversation was the Zika virus. Zika has been making a lot of news lately with the recent discovery that it is linked to severe birth defects, particularly of the brain, such as microcephaly for mothers who are pregnant when they are exposed to the Zika virus. This is also coupled with the fact that the upcoming Olympics are going to be held in Brazil, one of the countries that is known to be home to high numbers of the mosquito that has been identified as the species that tends to be carrying the Zika virus and is a main vector of transmission of this disease to humans. Dr. Drenzik and Dr. O'Neill shared some excellent information for both physicians as well as residents in the community, helping them understand better how to identify it when a patient is positive for the Zika virus, what to do in those instances, tests that are suggested for a given set of symptoms and circumstances, as well as some great information about what we can do around our homes or if we're traveling to minimize the risk that we're going to be exposed to the Zika virus due to bites by mosquitoes, understanding just how important community awareness is around issues like the Zika virus and what we can do to prevent it or treat it when it does occur. I was happy to have the opportunity to share this information with you, so let's get to it. Stick around for the full interview with Dr. Sherry Drenzik and Dr. Patrick O'Neill talking about Zika coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. It is the second Tuesday of the month, which means we're continuing our series with the Medical Association of Georgia. Every second and fourth Tuesdays, we feature guests of the Medical Association of Georgia with us here in the studio to share some great information for both the patients around the state of Georgia, as well as the medical practices that we serve through this show. Sometimes we have a special event here and there, like we did yesterday, where I sat down with Dr. Doug Patton. He's the chief medical officer of the Georgia Hospital Association. We got into the Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative that was put out by CMS that can affect the way that your practice is reimbursed. So if you haven't already, you got to make sure you check that out. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that's been making lots of news. Everybody's going to be familiar, or most people are anyway, with the notion of Zika. The Zika virus, which is a mosquito-borne illness that is uh, making headlines today due in large part to the uh, fact that one of the locations from which it originates is hosting the upcoming Olympics. And uh, some of those folks have traveled there and come back and, and are being found to be positive with Zika. So we're going to be talking with a couple of experts here in the studio today that will help talk about what exactly Zika is, what it's doing, how it's transmitted, and then more importantly, what can we do to protect ourselves uh, to uh, hopefully reduce the risk of contracting the Zika virus? And we've got Dr. Sherry Dresnick. She is the state epidemiologist, and I'm sure she'll be able to share some great information with us. Thanks for taking some time. Thank you. And we have the Director of Health Protection, Dr. Patrick O'Neill with the Georgia Department of Public Health. So thanks for sitting in with us. Thank you. 
And Sherry, let's start with you. Let's talk a little bit about what are we talking about when, with the Zika virus? What is it? We'll get down into how it's transmitted and all of that. And how, how prevalent of a problem are we talking about here? The Zika virus is actually a RNA virus, a single-stranded RNA virus of the genus Flavivirus. It is very similar to viruses that you um, might be familiar with, like the dengue virus, chikungunya virus, also a yellow fever virus. It actually was uh, discovered in Uganda in 1947. So it has been uh, around a while, but it hasn't caused any uh, large disease outbreaks um, uh, until 2007, in which uh, there were uh, there was a large disease outbreak that occurred uh, again in the Pacific Islands primarily. And it didn't make its way to the Americas until a year ago uh, in uh, Brazil. It was first documented in Brazil in May of 2015 and has explosively spread uh, through many countries uh, in South America and Central America and even some of the uh, U.S. territories. Well, do you, do you think that it is the fact that the Olympics are going to be held there that we're hearing more about it? Or do you believe that it's more around the rate of more and more people being exposed and contracting the element? Why do you think it's making such news for us? This particular virus, although it had, has been around a while, uh, again, it, we never saw it in, in the Americas before. So people uh, were not exposed to this, to this virus before, did not have immunity prior to this time. So once it arrived here in the Americas in a brand new area, uh, no pre-existing immunity, and, and it spread uh, very explosively uh, because uh, not only of the population being immune, but also this virus is transmitted by the bite of two species of Aedes mosquitoes. So having the uh, prevalence of these mosquito vectors in these areas is, uh, is a key foundation for how rapidly it can spread. Now, is it spread exclusively through the bite of the mosquito or can it be transmitted from person to person in some ways? Zika virus is primarily spread by the bite of an infected mosquito, but there are some other ways uh, that we have uh, been learning about that Zika can also be transmitted. They're not the primary way, but Zika can also be transmitted uh, from person to person uh, through sexual transmission. It is not common, but it can occur. Zika virus can also be transmitted um, intrauterine and resulting in congenital infections uh, to the fetus. So again, uh, we really consider pregnant women uh, to be our primary population at risk. And we really are, work very hard to try to raise awareness about protecting pregnant women against mosquito bites in areas where uh, the Zika vectors, again, uh, are prevalent and where Zika can indeed be transmitted in these affected countries, you know, all over South and Central America. Now, I'm sure that's quite a challenge when we're talking about tropical climates needing to cover up with clothing and, and you know, hopefully some sort of chemical repellent, I suppose. But I'm sure it's very difficult given the frequency and number of those mosquitoes being there. Certainly, uh, again, in these in these areas, there uh, mosquito uh, populations are indeed prevalent. But again, there are some very, you know, tried and true measures to try to prevent mosquito bites in these areas for other mosquito-borne diseases as well. And really, we have been recommending that individuals that travel to the Zika-affected areas, and these Zika-affected areas change really by the week. Uh, new countries are added all the time. 
that individuals be aware of where Zika is being transmitted. And then again, uh, prepare uh, that when they are traveling to avoid mosquito bites by again, uh, wearing insect repellent uh, DEET products. Uh, and also, again, as you had mentioned, uh, wearing long sleeves, long pants, uh, ensuring that they are uh, in places with air conditioning or window screens, or if that is not possible, ensure that they have uh, bed netting as well. You mentioned the fact that in some cases, it's not the prevalent way that it's spread, but some folks have transmitted it from one person to the other. From what I understand, the virus can reside in the semen of a man. Can it be transmitted back the other way? Can a woman who has the, the virus on board transmit it to a male sexual partner? We are learning more about sexual transmission of Zika every day. And in fact, it used to be considered that this would be exceedingly rare. And it turns out it's a little more common than we had thought. Here in the United States so far, we've actually documented 10 instances of sexual transmission of Zika. And in all of those 10, they actually were from symptomatic men who had traveled to Zika-affected areas and then transmitted Zika infection to their, uh, to their sexual partners. And so far, um, again, all of these men were symptomatic with uh, the, the typical symptoms of Zika, such as fever, rash, conjunctivitis, joint pain. And they actually were able to transmit Zika virus both, you know, kind of prior to symptom onset, during symptoms, and even after recovery. Um, but we've never seen it uh, actually, uh, again, being transmitted from a woman to her sexual partner uh, during sex. Uh, whether that uh, remains to be seen and we still need to uncover that is unknown. From what I understand as it relates to the symptoms that I could be wrong, but I, I was under the impression that the number of people who actually exhibit symptoms is on the small side. It's not the majority of patients that you can get bitten by the mosquito, be carrying the virus and be infected, yes. but not be exhibiting those symptoms that you're talking about that are kind of vague flu-like kind of symptoms, malaise and joint pain and those types of things, maybe a rash, but but not everybody gets those symptoms. So they don't necessarily know other than, uh, yeah, I've got bit by mosquitoes, but. Yes, that's absolutely correct. It, it, it um, is estimated that only one in five individuals that are infected with Zika virus actually show symptoms. The most common symptom by far uh, is rash, followed by fever. Um, like you said, this is, is uh, relatively nonspecific. But um, it, Zika in, infections were typically considered to be very mild, uh, again, uh, primarily asymptomatic. And again, hospitalizations and fatalities were considered, you know, kind of exceedingly rare. But we're learning more and more about it. it although it is true that most people that, again, have Zika infections may not even exhibit any symptoms at all. What we've learned during the course of this outbreak is that Zika infections can indeed have some very serious complications, particularly in pregnant women. And so it's not at all the sort of mild disease that, uh, again, one may pass out of hand and not worry about. It's, a, it's very serious for the population at risk that we mentioned earlier, which is pregnant women. The key is reducing risk in pregnant women. Uh, and, and it's really, this is a very unprecedented public health emergency. This outbreak is very unique uh, in the sense that there has never before been a mosquito-borne cause of serious birth defects, brain anomalies, and other complications of pregnancy. And it's been more than 50 years since we've even seen an infectious cause of these things. So it's very unique. 
microcephaly being one of the big ones. And, and I suppose if they don't develop full-blown microcephaly, I guess they can have probably developmental issues that are related to damage to the brain while they were in utero. It turns out that Zika virus itself is what we call a neurotropic virus, so it has affinity to infect uh, cells of the neurologic system. Again, uh, scientists are learning more and more about how the mechanism of this works, but it turns out that indeed there can be some, besides microcephaly, there can be other brain anomalies, there can be other, uh, again, uh, central nervous system disease manifestations of Zika that were unknown before, and it is really thought that indeed uh, there can be developmental issues in, uh, again, congenitally infected infants of, of moms that were infected with Zika pre, you know, uh, during their pregnancy. Epidemiologist for the state of Georgia, Dr. Sherry Drenzek, and Director of Health Protection for the Georgia Department of Public Health, Dr. Patrick O'Neill, with us in studio. We're talking about the Zika virus and the infection that can happen, having been exposed to mosquito bites of mosquitoes that are carrying the virus. And Dr. O'Neill, I ask you, as the person that's you know responsible for you know protection of the populace here in the state of Georgia, how how are we dealing with this? from a state perspective in terms of trying to identify early when people are carrying it um, and, you know, ideally prevent its spread from either person to person or even hopefully ideally keeping those mosquitoes away from Georgia? We're doing several things actually in preparation for this. And I think right now the most important strategy that we have is to minimize the likelihood of bites by the mosquito. We do not have uh, any type of vaccine that can be used to prevent this infection at the present time, although that's certainly under study. And I think with time, there perhaps will be a vaccine. But right now, that's not the case. Nor do we have any effective antiviral drugs uh, that seem to be useful in terms of uh, minimizing the, the risk of this situation. So what we're trying to do, since we don't have those direct strategies, is the indirect strategy of controlling the mosquitoes. And here in Georgia, that's going to be a bit of a problem because we happen to have both of the types that Dr. Drenzik mentioned, the mm -hmm. two species of uh, Aedes mosquitoes. We have the Aegypti and we also have the Alpopictus. The most competent of those particular vectors is Aegypti. And fortunately, I guess, that number of mosquitoes in Georgia is much less than the more common Albopictus, which is not as competent of a vector. But there have been outbreaks in, in other parts of the world where Albopictus was the primary vector. So we're concerned with both of these vectors here in Georgia that what we need to do is to be sure that we have the ability to minimize the risk of bites from both of those. We've done several things in order to address this issue, probably from the mosquito control uh, situation. One of the most important things that we've done is to develop a program such that if there should be local transmission of this particular virus, we have a team, a rapid response team that can approach that area where the transmission has occurred and essentially uh, do kind of a uh, almost a, a SWAT-type program to attack the mosquitoes in that particular area. We are very concerned that the right now we don't have the virus in the Georgia mosquitoes, but with all of the folks that have been in countries where Zika is prevalent and those folks returning uh, to the United States and certainly through Georgia since we have the busiest airport in the world, our concern is that someone will come in with that virus in their bloodstream, be bitten by one of our mosquitoes, and that mosquito will then start to carry the virus. 
And those mosquitoes tend to live about a month. So there's an opportunity for a lot of spread during that period of time. So everything that we can do to minimize the chances of people bringing the virus into the Georgia population of mosquitoes is part of our strategy. And it's not only a rapid response when we have transmission, but it's also general mosquito surveillance, knowing where the different types of mosquitoes are. And there are many, many types of mosquitoes, obviously. So we're watching particularly for these two particular types. Uh, We will be doing surveillance across the state. We're in the process right now of bringing aboard additional mosquito vector individuals that will essentially be be doing surveillance as well as will become part of a rapid response team should transmission occur. Uh, We hope to cover the entire state with these teams. Uh, Some of the team members are part of our rapid response environmental health teams already in place that we've had for a number of years. Uh, And then some will be augmented by the new folks that we're bringing aboard as part of the special efforts against Zika. So right now, the majority of the Georgia efforts in terms of minimizing the risk for Zika uh, involve the mosquito situation. We also have a tremendously important educational effort underway because we want folks that either are going abroad to countries that do have the ability uh, to see a lot of, of Zika cases to know that they need to protect themselves while they're there. And we've been extraordinarily uh, impressed with the folks at Hartsville-Jackson Airport on the international flights that are going to those countries, particularly uh, they have, the airport has been especially keen to allow us to put signage throughout the airport indicating what folks should do when they travel to those countries. All the things that you and Dr. Drenzik spoke about in terms of keeping much of the body covered if possible and using mosquito repellents containing 20 to 30 percent DEET. Uh, on exposed areas are really critically important while individuals are there. And many, many vendors at Hartsfield-Jackson have actually agreed to stock the mosquito repellents that uh, essentially have been viewed as appropriate repellents uh, by the Environmental Protection Agency. And in other countries, we don't know all the time that their repellents uh, really meet those standards. So we're encouraging people through the educational campaign to purchase their mosquito repellents before they leave. And then the other interesting thing is on return, because after people return, understanding that they may be totally asymptomatic, not know they have Zika, we're asking everyone returning from those countries to continue to use repellent up to three weeks after return. And the reason for the three weeks is that we know that the Zika virus will uh, essentially remain in the bloodstream, usually for about a week, once one contracts it. So just to be really sure that no one is going to bring it in and spread it, we're saying, go ahead and use your repellent for about three weeks after you return, so that if you are bitten, you are, or if you are attacked by mosquitoes, you're not likely to be bitten because the repellent will, will tend to detract from that. And not only using the, uh, the repellent on the exposed parts of the skin, but even on clothing. Uh, the clothing can be penetrated with yeah. various types of agents that will uh, retard the likelihood of mosquitoes landing on the, the clothing, too. So all those things are important. But the other area that's equally important from an educational perspective is to think about children. Although we we do recommend the repellent for pregnant women and for virtually all age groups except infants that are two months of age or under. 
we are not at all comfortable using the repellent uh, during that stage of life. So that means that folks have to take special precautions to protect their infants uh, without being able to use mosquito repellent if they are two months of age or younger. So all of that is uh, essentially a summary of our major strategy right now, since we don't have specific uh, ways of preventing the disease uh, with vaccines or with antiviral drug treatment. Our key strategy is to minimize the likelihood of mosquito bites. So how effective is DEET as a repellent in terms of keeping them from biting you? Is it Are there still going to be some that are just hungry enough they're going to bite you anyway? But Or, or is it one of those that's effective enough that when you're wearing one of those products that you mentioned that had 20 to 30 percent DEET contained in it, that it's pretty effective at keeping it's, away? It's very effective. Uh, obviously, there are always exceptions. I don't think that you can say that anything is 100 percent effective, but certainly the recommended percentage of DEET, the 20 to 30 percent of the mosquito repellents uh, containing uh, DEET, uh, is known to be very effective in uh, preventing mosquito bites. You talked about the rapid response teams. What are they comprised of? What sorts of folks are going to the area when we've identified somebody's been, a, you know, someone's in the, in Georgia that's that's been known now to be effect, in, infected by the virus? What Who all is going to deal with that? The rapid response teams are made up of environmental health specialists, which we have basically uh, in all districts, all public health districts throughout the state of Georgia. And these response teams have been in place for a number of years uh, and have been used in other situations. You may recall that we had a, a previous uh, problem with West Nile virus mm-hmm. uh, here in Georgia, as well as many other states. And utilizing uh, our rapid response teams at that time was important as well. But these folks are trained to deal with various types of environmental uh, hazards. So they can be used for many, many different purposes. And the teams are made up of uh, multiple individuals, usually anywhere between six and 12 individuals on the rapid response teams. And they're scattered pretty much so that all parts of the state of Georgia are covered. And when they get there, what are they focused on doing? They're focused on, uh, it depends upon what they're called in for, for example. And one of the most important things would be a response to uh, a known transmission. And of our greatest concern is local transmission. So if that were to happen, they really would want to go in and see that mosquitoes in that immediate area. And remember, these two particular strains of mosquitoes don't travel very far. Uh, We're talking about feet, yards, but we're not talking miles. So covering the area where the transmission has occurred uh, is going to be terribly important, and it has to be done very quickly. So that's why we refer to them as, as rapid responders. And they would go in and basically see that everything that was done uh, was to try to eradicate those mosquitoes and to prevent uh, continued replication of mosquitoes in that area. And so I guess we become as much a vector for the mosquito population because we're going to move miles and miles, obviously. So if they're in Macon and I get bitten in Macon, I'm the reason why it ends up in Savannah. (laughs) Yes, uh, that's certainly an issue. The other thing that's important, I think, is for all of us to realize that we play a key role in uh, being able to reduce the areas where these mosquitoes can reproduce. Right. These mosquitoes tend to reproduce in very small areas where there's a collection of water. We, we don't have to have large ponds or, or 
uh, a lot of dirty ditches for these mosquitoes to, to reproduce. Uh, they can produce in the water that occurs after a rainstorm in, um, in a magnolia leaf, for example. Mm. Uh, so it's really important for folks throughout the state to know that every time that we have a rain, if they have anything in their yards, particularly in the backyards where folks are likely to congregate for social purposes, to go out and tip and toss, to empty those containers. And this is also a very important cleanup time in Georgia. The springtime is, is the Keep Georgia Beautiful time. And what we're encouraging folks to do is to get rid of anything like spare tires that can be yeah. uh, collectors of water, anything that's not necessary that conceivably could become a container that would hold water to um, eliminate that, if at all possible. So we know that it's mainly been people coming in that have carried the virus with them. And, and as you were saying earlier, we don't believe yet that it's entered our mosquito population. So, I mean, when we're going about our daily lives here in Georgia, I mean, how much should we be thinking about it? How much of a real risk do you think it is to the folks around our state today? I'm going to switch over to Dr. Drenzik because I think uh, she's already addressed some of the issues, particularly with pregnant women. And uh, if you could reemphasize that, Sherry, I think it would be important for the folks to hear that once again, because that's what we're so critically concerned about. Yes, yeah, certainly. So even though we have not detected any local transmission of Zika virus here in Georgia, meaning our mosquito populations here have not been infected, one of the, uh, again, key messages that uh, we are trying to get out is that for individuals that have traveled to uh, Zika-affected countries, uh, particularly pregnant women, um, besides, again, preventing mosquito bites during travel, uh, a key component of reducing risk uh, for all Georgians is that individuals who have traveled to Zika-affected areas and have returned, uh, again, practice those mosquito bite avoidance and reduction techniques that, that Dr. O'Neill mentioned, you know, kind of both individually uh, wearing insect repellent and the individual measures such as clothing, but also the um, the re reduction of water sources around their home. So every individual that has traveled, again, can play a role in, again, reducing risk of of infecting any local mosquitoes here. So every time um, an individual uh, returns uh, from travel in may, may be experiencing symptoms, or if they're a pregnant woman, maybe they aren't experiencing symptoms but are concerned about Zika after having been potentially exposed in one of the affected countries. Again, if a, if a healthcare provider is considering Zika and the differential diagnosis and wants to offer Zika laboratory testing uh, for this individual, uh, it's very important, and we have um, provided education to physicians that to please counsel these patients that have traveled uh, about the the critical importance of avoiding mosquito bites here in order to reduce the risk of of infecting any local mosquitoes it doesn't end you know kind of once you get off the plane there's a critical role to try to stop it from uh, getting into our mosquitoes here in Georgia so again we we've, we've uh, been asking uh, healthcare providers to counsel individuals to Again, uh, guard against mosquito bites for a, a, a week uh, if you're symptomatic 
uh, or three weeks, even if you're not symptomatic, after you've returned from travel. And Dr. Drenzik, I, I think it would also be good for the folks uh, to listen to the concerns that we've also expressed related to the males who return. And you also had, uh, I think uh, CW had mentioned to you earlier about the fact that we do know that the Zika virus may persist in the semen for a period of time. And I know CDC has come out with recommendations in terms of uh, males returning from any of those countries where Zika is prevalent in terms of what they should do to avoid the likelihood, even if their partner is not pregnant on return, but they're going to continue to have sexual relations. Uh, there's a period of time that efforts need to be made to reduce the chances of transmitting the disease uh, from sexual intercourse, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that is a very good point. And as a matter of fact, that period of time for, for men, uh, the CDC recommends that men who have returned uh, from Zika-affected areas, and if they have had symptoms of Zika infection, or if they uh, actually have tested positive for Zika infection, actually uh, protect themselves by uh, not by uh, using condoms uh, correctly every time for a period of six months after they return uh, wow. back uh, from, from travel, simply because, again, there has been um, a, a recent report that Zika virus was uh, uh, found in uh, the semen of a man that was infected up to 62 days after his infection. But it is unknown if it can be longer, and it's unknown whether it's it's shed intermittently or at a, at a steady rate. So again, as a window of safety, they're saying six months if you've been symptomatic and have traveled uh, to Zika-affected countries. Uh, do not have unprotected sex uh, if uh, you are male for six months. Now, if you haven't had symptoms, if you're a male that has traveled to Zika-affected areas you haven't had any symptoms, haven't been tested positive for Zika, uh, it is recommended that these individuals actually um, either, either um, you know, practice uh, safe sex or if they're thinking about becoming pregnant, if they're a couple of considering uh, conception, it is recommended they delay that for a period of eight weeks. So with symptoms, uh, no uh, no unsafe sex for six months if you're a male with symptoms without uh, eight weeks after you get back if you don't have symptoms. And the same uh, for women uh, that, again, have traveled and returned. It's recommended that women, uh, again, that have returned uh, from travel to Zika-affected areas uh, delay conception if they're thinking about becoming pregnant for a period of eight weeks after they've gotten back. Now, is the infection diagnosed more by clinical symptoms and clinical history, or is there a blood test of some sort that they're drawing to identify it? Yes. Um, Zika infections are uh, diagnosed in the laboratory. And again, um, uh, there are uh, Prior to even last week, uh, there were no commercially available laboratory tests at all. All of the testing was done, uh, again, through public health triage, either at the CDC laboratory in Fort Collins or now at our Georgia Public Health Laboratory. So it's very important uh, for healthcare providers to be cognizant that, that there are a variety of laboratory tests that are available to diagnose Zika infection, depending on where in the clinical course uh, the patient is. For example, if it's if it's less than seven days uh, of 
from the time of onset of their symptoms or if it's longer than that. You know, there's one test that we use if it's early on. There's another test that is used if it's a little bit later in the clinical course. It's very important that if uh, healthcare providers are considering Zika and the differential and they want to uh, offer testing uh, to individuals who have traveled to these areas, that they contact us at the Department of Public Health uh, for consultation and triage about testing. We are the ones that can facilitate testing for them. They can reach us uh, at our usual hotline number of one eight six six pub health P-U-B-H-L-T-H. It's a number that most healthcare providers here in Georgia are familiar with and how to reach us 24-7. And we will walk them through what tests are appropriate, facilitate getting the specimens to our Georgia Public Health Laboratory, and ensure that, again, um, the appropriate testing is done. Uh, So, And in the meantime, we also, as I had mentioned earlier, counsel offer counseling to these patients that are being tested, please, while while you're being tested and while we're waiting for the test results to come back, no matter what, it's very important that you guard against mosquito bites here in Georgia uh, in, in case, you know, you again may have virus in your blood. How effectively can I get rid of them in my yard outside of the the the, the tip and turn over things that after a rain and, and avoiding water collecting, but when you have you can get citronella candles, for example, and I know there's some measure of spray or fog kind of stuff you can do in the yard. Is that effective to control population or is that more of a placebo effect? I'm feeling better because I'm doing something, but the mosquitoes are still there and they're just kind of laughing at me. Uh, we do not feel that uh, the citronella candles have any significant benefit at all. The mosquitoes just think they're pretty. Uh, <laughs> perhaps so. But there are Uh, definite uh, chemicals that can be used to uh, reduce the mosquito population. There are chemicals that actually will kill adult mosquitoes, but there are also chemicals or even other strategies that we call larvicides, which will essentially prevent mosquitoes that are in that particular stage of development from moving forward and becoming adults. Uh, those uh, strategies are quite effective. The key is getting them to the right area. Uh, A mosquito truck, for example, with a fog going up and down a street probably is not a very effective tool, even if it will kill adult mosquitoes, because many of those mosquitoes are not out front. And that fog rarely penetrates to the area in the backyard where the mosquitoes may be multiplying. So the, the fogging of areas is not a very effective way to go. It's getting to where the mosquitoes are actually um, reproducing that has to occur. And that very often means working in the backyards. We talked earlier about the Nile, uh, the West Nile virus when it came around. Of course, recently we experienced the event where Ebola patients were coming to our state for treatment. How do you feel like those previous experiences have contributed to us being better prepared now? It sounds like we've got a pretty good plan in place. Do you feel like those things that we've dealt with over time have made us be that much more savvy and prepared here for this event? Maybe we can do a good job of controlling it. I feel very positive about the experiences that we've had in the past. And and I'd like for Dr. Drenzik particularly to talk about what we in epidemiology have been able to do in terms of being able to monitor patients. I think that her team was extraordinarily effective during the Ebola 
time frame when we were monitoring folks that were coming in from West Africa. And in just a second, I would ask her to, to speak to that because I think it's so critically important. But the other thing that I'd like to call attention to is that over the last 10 to 15 years in Georgia, as well as many other states, uh, we have essentially been building an infrastructure to deal with various types of catastrophes. Much of this activity was accentuated after 9-11. Uh, and we had federal grants to support efforts to uh, essentially build preparedness in the public health community, both for public health as well as for the healthcare community where healthcare is delivered, hospitals, for example, physicians' offices, clinics. And I think that the relationships that have already been built as part of that preparedness effort sets us up for being able to respond very rapidly to whatever may be coming our way right now in Zika, but there will be other things that, that beset us. Infections are emerging all the time, brand new ones as well as some of the old ones that are recurring. And I think that having those relationships in place so that at the time of the crisis, you're not out there exchanging business cards trying to get to know each other, but you already know the right people and you can address those people rapidly because it takes not just a village, but a whole state to have a, a really good response. And I think in Georgia, we are far better off than many states because those relationships are in place. And Sherry, you talked about a number of physicians can call, for example, if they're presented with a patient who's traveled to one of those Zika-prone uh, locations that may be possibly somebody that would be carrying the virus and they can contact that number and hopefully we can give it again before we close. But um what about for the for the communities out there? Are they getting involved and in, in really, would you say, helping? Or we do we need to recruit some more, you know, community level beyond the state, what the state is doing? Are those communities out there doing a good job and, and maybe possibly need to do more as far as alerting their 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 population in their in their communities that that would help this that much more? Yeah, I think. Uh... The communities are, are really doing a lot already, and I was not quite uh, aware of this uh, until last week. We had a meeting with all the district health directors in the state of Georgia last week, and we had a brainstorming session to ask them, you know, what do we need to do to get our messages out there better? We've created fantastically good messages at the state level. Our director of communications, Nancy Nidham, and her team have just done fabulous work, and you can see that at the Atlanta airport, for example. Uh, and we've created messages for all sorts of stakeholders across the state. But creating those messages at the state level is not equal to getting them down to the grassroots level. And so we had this brainstorming session. I was really pleased to hear the folks in our districts talk about what they'd already done. For example, in one of our districts, the messages are going out in the water bills about tip and toss campaigns, what's necessary to reduce the, uh, the likelihood of, of breeding of mosquitoes. Uh, there's also, in, in one of our districts, messages going out in the power bills. Uh, we've also been working with the uh, Association of County Commissioners and asked them on their website to carry all the information that we've prepared so that it can get down to the commission levels. Those are policymakers at the local level. That's very important. Uh, we've had the opportunity for uh, our entomologist in public health to actually speak at uh, the uh, annual meeting two weeks ago in Savannah uh, of county commissioners throughout the state and make them well aware of our concerns and what needs to be done and the fact that this messaging has to continue. Uh, 
We've also approached meteorologists in the state. We're asking that after every uh, weather forecast, when they forecast rain, that they close their message by saying, and don't forget to tip and toss after the rain's over. So we're approaching this in numerous ways. We're utilizing the faith-based communities. Uh, we're utilizing education. You know, when kids take home messages to the parents, uh, sometimes that's more important than directing it to the parents primarily. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, so we're, we're looking at every possible avenue, and we're seeing some success. But that doesn't mean we're there. We need to continue that. And one of the things that we have to emphasize is that this is going to be ongoing. This isn't something that you do for a couple of weeks and then you forget about it. We've got mosquitoes for months to come. So these efforts must be continued and we must not allow people to suddenly think, oh, after two or three weeks, we don't need to do this anymore. Uh, This does need to continue. And I think that uh, everything that we can do to strengthen our messages and to be sure that those messages are reaching individuals at the community level is absolutely critical. Where does the folks who aren't a physician need to go to get information about Zika and what they can do to protect themselves further? There are any number of really great places, obviously uh, somewhat biased in terms of our own website where you can get excellent information in public health. But also CDC has a just plethora of great information uh, about Zika virus uh, worldwide. And as Dr. Drenzik mentioned earlier, we're very concerned because the numbers of countries where the Zika virus is, uh, is seeming to show up in large numbers continues to change. And I think that the last I heard in the Americas, we had about 36 countries now, and that's just constantly growing. Uh, worldwide, there's something like 45 countries where Zika is very, very prevalent. So we're talking about spread throughout much of the world. And keeping up with where those countries at risk are is going to be critically important. And I think probably the very best way to do that is at the CDC website. And if you want to go to the Georgia Department of Public Health, that one is dph.georgia, spelled out, dph.georgia.gov slash Zika, that's Z-I-K-A, dash virus, dash F-A-Q. There's a number of different subjects there that will tell you A lot of the things that our experts here today have shared, you can also contact the Georgia Department of Public Health at 404-657-2588, 404-657-2588. And Sherry, what was the number again for a physician? If I've got a patient that I want to know which test I should order? It is 1-866-PUB-HEALTH, P-U-B-H-L-T-H, 24-7. Super. And for the folks that haven't been to the MAG website, we're partnered with them here to provide this show to you. You can go to mag.org, get great information about the events going on uh, with the Medical Association of Georgia and the various activities that they're uh, taking part in. I want to say thank you much for sitting in with us in the studio, Sherry and uh, Patrick, joining us to talk about this. I mean, I, I think it's clearly something that uh, a lot of people need some education about. I, I, I don't know that it really got the necessary zeal behind it originally. I think it was just, oh, that's down in Brazil and I'm not going to the Olympics, so I'm good to go. But now that some people are coming back to the country and bringing uh, some virus with them, that there's some risk here that we really need to pay attention to. So you shared some great information. I'm pleased to be here helping you do that. 
We Thank appreciate you very it. Much. Thank Any you for final having thoughts us. before we let you all get back to the office? One of the things that I think uh, <clears throat> might be helpful for the, the folks uh, online to understand, Dr. Drenzik can mention the numbers of folks that she has in her section uh, triage for testing. Uh, and I think that number is significant. It's not just in other states, but here in Georgia, Sherry, how many have we had? Uh, we have uh, triaged uh, over 800 inquiries uh, from uh, healthcare providers and uh, in regards to uh, suspect patients. We've tested uh, or in the process of testing uh, uh, more than 300 individuals. And again, uh, the majority of those are pregnant women. And we have uh, so far documented 13 positive Zika infections. They were all travel-related, no local transmission here in Georgia, and none were in pregnant women. Oh, that's great. But that surprising number is for sure. It's definitely here. It's definitely something we need to pay attention to. It sounds like to me, if you can avoid traveling to those areas while you're pregnant or thought to be possibly pregnant, it might be the wise way to uh, have the greatest measure of prevention I for agree. you and your child. But if you have to go, as they were saying earlier, take extensive measures to protect yourself, to prevent the bite of mosquitoes, as they were talking about. It may be difficult sometimes in those countries to obtain deep containing products that have a sufficient amount of that 20 to 30 percent range of concentration that will help you be more effective at preventing the bites. So do what you can to take that with you from the states where we know it's an effective uh, compound of that preventive spray. And then, of course, dress for it. It's kind of hard to imagine, you know, you go to Brazil, you're not going to go put on the skimpy bathing suit uh, very safely anymore. But I guess that's the way we have to have to go about it now. So uh, I'm really pleased again to have you all here and share this great information. We hope that the folks listening today turn around and share this information with their social media networks and and uh, contacts because you might just put this information in the hands of somebody that can have a great impact on them and whether or not they're affected. Um, so uh, we want to say thank you in advance to th those folks for turning around and sharing this. And, and uh, I want to say thank you to the partners at Medical Association of Georgia, Tom and Susan, Donald and Lori over there. Uh, we really appreciate them making this show possible. And uh, to you folks from the Department of Public Health, thanks so much for, for sharing this information. Thank you for having us. Thank Everybody you. out there, we look forward to catching up with you same time, same place next week. We appreciate your time. We'll see you then.